0: Welcome to Spirit of the Camino, a podcast about the unique and magical experience that is the Camino de Santiago. Join us on this adventure and discover the spirit of the Camino for yourself.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Spirit of the Camino podcast. I'm Nick and I'm here with Wendy and we have been walking on the communion ascent we've done five days of walking and today on the sixth day which is not quite how it worked in the bible we are taking a rest
0: yes a much deserved rest i would say i think it's done us a lot of good
1: yeah and so we're here in myrtila and this is a place that we visited before but as we mentioned in our introduction episode to this season it's a place that we were both looking forward to visiting again
0: Yeah, so we had been here previously for a festival, specifically an Islamic festival, which we're going to talk more about that aspect of the town in this episode um and that was a fantastic experience but it was kind of hard to get a feel for what the town was normally like outside of the festival experience because you know there were all these temporary stalls set up and these tarps and everything that were kind of covering the buildings so we were looking forward to coming back and seeing it you know just on a typical day or um to the extent that we have typical days uh, right now. uh, Obviously, there are not very many tourists here because of the pandemic situation, so it's very quiet. So quite a contrast to the way that we experienced it last time during the festival.
1: Yeah, but it's been nice to have, you know, the best of both worlds in that way, I guess. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we said in the introduction episode was that we were looking forward to exploring a bit of the Islamic heritage and Islamic legacy here in southern Portugal. And this is the first southern camino that we've done either in portugal or in spain and while we have visited places in southern portugal and in southern spain before and seen some of this islamic heritage we haven't done that on camino before and so it's just a a bit of a new experience in terms of the camino for us it gives a little bit of a different perspective and makes you think a little bit more and so that was something that we were looking forward to um, because you know, typically, a lot of the main Caminos are in northern Spain, and they're kind of in similar areas. And so to have one that's starting here in southern Portugal, it just adds a whole different aspect to the Camino. And mm-hmm. that's true both in terms of landscapes and, and things like that, but also in terms of the culture as well.
0: Yeah, I think on previous Caminos that we've walked, uh, the historic focus has been more about the Romanesque period and medieval period and a um, lots of... Uh, you know, architecture that's connected directly with this Christian pilgrimage um, and not much about the Muslim heritage of the Iberian Peninsula, which is also a very, very significant part of the history of this part of the world.
1: Right. But that's mostly in the south of both Spain and Portugal or the peninsula as a whole. And so it's something that if you walk, for example, the Camino Frances, uh, you don't see any of that. And that's, of course, basically the point, or in some cases, the point of these routes in the north of Spain was that they went through areas that were controlled by Christians to get to Santiago de Compostela at a time when Muslim control of the Iberian Peninsula was quite significant. And so these early pilgrimage routes, such as the Primitivo, for example, uh, began because there was a, a path that you could take to Santiago, which didn't uh, take you through these Muslim areas where you probably wouldn't have been able to go as a Christian pilgrim at that time. Mm-hmm. So, on the one hand, it's obvious that these are the the initial paths that would have emerged. On the other hand, you still had Christian people uh, living under Muslim rule. These are called um, and. They would have also been making some of them, would have been making a pilgrimage to Santiago as well once the tomb of the apostle was discovered. Um, and in any case, you know, there are many of these in southern Spain such as the Camino Mozárabe, the Vía de la Plata, which starts in Sevilla or Seville, which is one of the great Muslim centers of southern Spain. Um, here in Portugal, we don't really have traditional southern caminos, but now we're starting to see the development of three southern caminos in particular, of which the Camino Santiago, which we're on at the moment, is one. And so we can now kind of incorporate some of this Islamic legacy into the Camino de Santiago.
0: Yeah, which is something new and exciting for us, and would be new and exciting for, I think, any pilgrims who choose to walk one of these southern caminos through Portugal, which are still pretty unknown at this point. They're, um, yeah, it's kind of a new concept, and, uh, you know, we're kind of pioneering this one, but so far it's going really well. We're really, really loving it. And And so we hope to encourage other people to do it, too.
1: Definitely. So just to give a little bit of background, um, especially in terms of Portugal and the Islamic period here, um, you know, at the time of the invasion. Uh, of the people that are called Moors in the Iberian Peninsula, and these were a combination of Arabs and North African Berbers, and this happened in 711. There was no concept of Spain and Portugal, it was just the Iberian Peninsula as a whole, which was being ruled by the Christian Visigoths. And basically, this invasion came in 711, and within a few short years, uh, these Moors had conquered uh Up to, I've read 93% of the Iberian Peninsula, leaving basically just a sliver uh, in the very far north. And then the kind of remnants of the Visigothic Kingdom or some of the nobles of of that kingdom then kind of regrouped. And then you see in Spain these little kingdoms begin to emerge, such as Asturias and Leon, and then later uh, Castile and etc. And so basically all of modern day Portugal was under Muslim rule at one time, but there was no real concept of Portugal. Uh, at that time, that's somewhat disputed, but certainly the way that I read it, there wasn't really anything that you could conceivably call Portugal at this time. Uh, later on, uh, in the late 11th century and then moving into the early 12th century, uh, this idea of this small state of Portugal, uh, which was carved out of part of the Kingdom of Galicia, became a reality. And then, as we saw, uh, as we see in Spain at the same time, you see some pushback against the Muslim rule, and then expansion south by these Christian kingdoms. One of the things that's interesting is that in Portugal, this happened really quite quickly. And in Spain, part of the problem is that these Christian kingdoms were warring against each other as often as they were against the sort of so-called common Muslim enemy. And so progress in Spain for the reconquest was very slow. Uh, In Portugal, it was quite quick because it really doesn't begin at all until the early 12th century. And then by the mid 13th century, it's finished. And so it's less than 150 years, all of Portugal was conquered by uh, the the new nascent Christian kingdom of Portugal, and it took two and a half more centuries before the final um, vestiges of Muslim rule were extinguished from Spain in 1492. One of the things I think is interesting, if you look at this, and we've been talking a little bit about how we've seen um, the presence of the cult of Santiago and the order of Santiago here in southern Portugal while we've been on this Camino. And you know I think the Islamic period is interesting in and of itself, but I think one thing that we've been learning you know, this past week or so is that the very fact that there was this Muslim presence and there was a reconquest effort against it, that helped to greatly expand the cult of Santiago and the power of the order of Santiago here in Portugal.
0: Yeah, I mean that was largely their purpose. Really, the purpose of the order was to uh, fight against these Moors and to take back control of these lands and uh, you know have them be under Christian rule rather than under Muslim rule.
1: And so we see in Spain, for example, and we see it also here in Portugal, this idea of uh, Santiago, the Moor Slayer.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh,
1: Mat- Mat- Matamoros, and. There's a church in a place called Santiago do, do Casen in Portugal. It's not on the route that we're walking, but it's on one of these other southern caminos. It's on the central Camino. And it's actually really not that far south of Lisbon, actually. But that was one town that was the center of the Order of Santiago in Portugal at one point. And there's a, a carving or a statue of Santiago the Morslayer there. And it's kind of a coincidence that just a couple of weeks ago in Lisbon, we saw a mold of this a sort of replica mold of this at a exhibition that we were at um but it shows that this idea of santiago as aiding uh, santiago the santiago apostle as aiding the christians in their reconquest attempts against the muslims you know was something that was important in portugal as it was in spain and we can still see evidence of that today
0: yeah, I think the image of Santiago that most pilgrims are probably familiar with is the Pilgrim Santiago, which is doesn't really make a lot of sense when you think about it, that he should be dressed as a pilgrim going to visit his own dead body. <laughs> um, but that is the way he, that he's often depicted with this specific hat and cloak, and he has the shell the conch shell uh, usually attached to the top of his hat, and he often has a gourd and you know a staff that he would use to, to walk with. Um, and so he's kind of depicted as a pilgrim. And that's the one that we most often see in connection with the Camino, but there is another, um, also, frequent depiction of Santiago, which is, as you said, Matamoros, and then he's usually on horseback in that scenario, and he has a spear, and he's, um, yeah, slaying. Much as you would see um, Saint George slaying the dragon, you know, that's a very common image. So it's a similar kind of thing, except he's actually killing a person. He's killing a Moor who is being trampled underneath the feet of his horse. So it's a bit gruesome. Um, But there was definitely this connection, or at least this perceived connection, between Santiago and the reconquest of these lands from the Moors.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And actually, an interesting segue straight away is that in Tavira, which is where we started this Camino, the Church of Santiago there has also an image of Santiago, the Moor Slayer, on the facade of the church. (laughs) So Tavira is where we started, um, and this was one of the last towns uh, conquered in the Reconquest. It wasn't uh, reconquered until 1242, and the entire Reconquest of Portugal was completed in 1249. Um, and so, it also has, you know, an Islamic heritage to it prior to that period. And there's an Islamic museum in Tavira, and so we went to visit that. And, you know, there wasn't a huge amount on display it was mostly kind of fragments of pottery and and things like that there was in particular one piece that was very impressive and it's the vase or the vase of tavira mm-hmm. and it's quite hard to describe but basically it's believed to be a miniature and it's this kind of bowl with these figures uh, around it and the figures are, are people on horseback there's a woman on horseback and there's a a um, kind of warrior on horseback and and things like that and so it was really quite an impressive work
0: Oh, for sure. That was definitely the the most impressive work in the museum, and there were a couple of things that struck me about it. One was that it was made by Muslims, but yet depicted these human and animal figures, which is something that normally you don't see in Islamic art, in architecture, because from what I understand, you know, that's forbidden in the Quran. Um, so you would normally only see geometric patterns or perhaps something that looked vaguely like flowers. Uh, but there you're already kind of getting into iffy territory. Um, so I was a bit confused to see this, um, because yeah, for one, the woman is wearing a hijab. Her hair is covered and you can see that everything around her face is covered. Um, so it was clearly, uh, you know, depiction of, of Muslim life and it seemed to be made by Muslims. Um, but yet, you know, was the fact that it was depicting these, these people and animals uh, seemed to contradict things that I've seen and what I've understood of Islamic art to this point. And I didn't really get a good explanation of that in the museum. So I'm still a little bit confused or yeah, just wondering about it but it was a a unique piece nothing it's like nothing i've ever seen before for sure
1: right and it sometimes goes on loan to places even like the louvre in paris it's been displayed there so it's something that other museums are interested in in displaying as well on a temporary basis if they can because it's really such an interesting piece and it dates from the late 11th century so it's even before the creation of the kingdom of portugal up in the north of of portugal and so it's it's clearly in this Muslim period in Tavira. The other interesting thing that I thought about the museum was that in addition to having explanations, you know, possibly local explanations about Islam in the Tavira area or the specific uh, culture that produced some of the art that's on display there. There was also quite a lot of explanations at the beginning about the origins of Islam and the story of Islam, and then going through the different periods, um, you know, of the history of the religion. What we would call in in uh, Christian terms, church history, and looking at things like the Umayyad dynasty and then the Abbasid Caliphate and uh, things like that. Um, and I thought that was interesting because you know one of the things that certainly that our perception is is that there's not that much really known about Islam in Portugal despite this five and a half century period of Muslim rule in parts of Portugal. And one of the things that we noticed, uh, if you remember late last year, we went on this tour in Lisbon, which was a specific Muslim tour of Lisbon, which was just being put on as a special thing maybe once or twice. Mm -hmm. And uh, the woman who was giving the tour was obviously a a regular tour guide in Portugal, and and she was fine. And in certain places where we went. She was very knowledgeable about the things that she was talking about, but she had to prepare specifically for this Muslim-themed tour, and at the beginning, she had to g- had to give an introduction to Islam, and she didn't really know it that well.
0: Yeah, we caught her out on a few mistakes. I mean, we didn't, you know, publicly say, hey, that's not right, but there were several times when I thought, hmm, you're not you don't really know what you're talking about there
1: and she was uh using notes to 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 talk about you know the origins and the history of islam and things like that and so i just thought that stood out as someone who who's a tour guide really not being that familiar with the religion and i think that is a kind of microcosm of portugal as a whole and so i thought at the museum in Tavira to have these explanations uh really very basic explanations about about islam i thought was helpful
0: yeah, yeah, I think that's great that it was there. Unfortunately, it is only in Portuguese. So if you go there to Tavera to the museum and you're not able to read Portuguese, then that's not that helpful. Um, but it is great that it's, there for the local people to read, and I actually picked up a few things here and there as well. I didn't read the whole thing because it was a lot of text on the walls and it got to be a bit overwhelming at times, and I felt like a lot of it I was already familiar with so I didn't need to read it, but just skimming through, um, there were you know one or two points that I'd either forgotten or had perhaps never realized before, like for example, the origin of the word more or Moro in, in Portuguese, comes from Mauritania, which nowadays is, well, that is a country in northern Africa. There's a country called Mauritania. But in ancient Roman times, that was a, an ancient Roman province that was, I think, not exactly where the current the current state of Mauritania is today. It was more around Tunisia, would you say? You no, know, around
1: or, Morocco. Around Morocco. So north of the current Mauritania, yeah.
0: Right. Um, so, yeah, I had never really put two and two together there, so I thought that it was interesting to know about the origin of the word. So yeah, there's a lot of good information in the museum, and then, it's a bit uh, light on actual artifacts, except for this one vase, which is really amazing and worth seeing. And uh, just for that alone, I would say.
1: Yeah, and just for the very fact that they want to celebrate this and want to have this museum, that's the, I think, the important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not necessarily that it's a world class museum by any stretch, except for this one piece, um, but just having it there. Sort of starts a conversation or or starts a a thought in someone's mind. Oh, look, there's an Islamic museum here. Why is there an Islamic museum here? Mm. Oh, it turns out that there was Islamic rule in this period for in this area for a long period of time. And so, I think both for Portuguese people and for visitors to Portugal, it's just important that uh, they know that. Yeah. So on the first day we left from Tavira and actually we were surprised uh, just to see a little um, reminder of Muslim rule in this place called Castelo Velia, which we mentioned in the last episode as this little village with a great view overlooking the coast and the lagoon that's uh, below it. But on the wall of, of a building in the town, there was a, a plaque with an inscription with a poem, which mm-hmm. was in Arabic and in Portuguese.
0: Yeah, it had originally been written in Arabic and then they had created this plaque this made out of azulejos, this ceramic tile plaque that had the original Arabic and then had a translation into Portuguese and um, a little tribute to the author who was a native of that village of Casela when it was under Muslim rule, he was a Muslim himself and uh, that street was also named after him. It was not a poet that I was familiar with. Granted, I'm not really much of a poetry fan, so there aren't that many poets who I, whose work I'm familiar with. Um, Probably
1: not in Arabic uh, yeah, as well. Yeah,
0: even less so in Arabic.
1: No, but I mean, the point was he was a local uh, poet from this town, um, mm-hmm. and so they, you know, they wanted to, to celebrate that. Um, and so, yeah, maybe he's not well-known even in the, in the Arab world for being a great poet, or maybe he is, we, we don't really know, but the fact that he was just from this town and they wanted to celebrate that. And then you mentioned that, you know, this plaque was in Azalazes and both the word and the concept comes from the Arabs as well. And it's now such an important part of the Portuguese national culture. So that was just a nice little touch as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was really cool to see.
1: Uh, a few days later, we stayed in a town called Mesquita, actually a village called Mesquita. Uh-huh. Mesquita is the Portuguese word for mosque as Mesquita is the Spanish word for mosque. Uh, and that's quite interesting because there's not a mosque there. No, <laughs>
0: but there is a chapel up on the hill and they suspect that that was built on the site of what, of a mosque that was there previously.
1: Yeah. I mean, the name obviously comes from somewhere and there's obviously a reason mm. for it. You don't just randomly call your village mosque when you're in a, when, when a Christian um, polity, so yeah, it must be an old name that somehow comes from this period. Uh, we were told by a local in the village that there's an archaeological excavation uh, that's coming next month and they're hoping to find well, they're hoping to find whatever they find, but, but it's possible that they're going to find some things from the Islamic period and even from the Roman period uh, before, before that. But it would be really nice if they were able to see if there's some kind of yeah reason why the village is called Mishkita.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, just from speaking to him, I got the impression that they they do have reason to believe that, you know, there was uh, Islamic occupation there and they have specific places that they're going to be looking at. And I think he named five different areas, five different, you know, specific locations where they were planning to dig and they uh, were expecting to find things from, from the Muslim period there. So, yeah, that'll be really interesting to see what they come up with.
1: So we left Mishkita yesterday morning, and then we walked yesterday to Myrtala, which is where we are now, and taking our rest day today. And Myrtala is really one of, if not the biggest sort of center of uh, Islamic legacy in southern Portugal, and perhaps, I, I suppose, in all of Portugal, really.
0: Yeah, I can't think of anywhere else that, I'm, that I've that i ever been to or that I'm aware of in Portugal that showcases its Islamic heritage in the way that Martela does.
1: Yeah, there's another town called Silves, which is in the Algarve, and they have a castle dating from the Islamic period, and it, it was a very important center at that time, and I believe the last... A place that was conquered as part of the reconquest um, but myrtula certainly does an excellent job of really promoting this heritage which is which is i think really important and and really worthwhile so its name during the muslim period was matula and then that's how we get myrtula and the reason it was important is that it was a trading town on the Guadiana river and we knew this when we came four years ago the first time we came to Myrtala, and you can see the river from the town Um, And so you kind of read, okay, it's an important river, important train town, but we didn't really have any concept of what that actually meant. We didn't really know where the river went or what it gave access to or anything like that. So that's been one of the really interesting things just the last few days is that we've been walking along this river basically for the last four days. Mm -hmm. And where we spent our first night was a town called Villa Real de San Antonio, and that's where the river enters the sea. And so we saw the river at the mouth of the river, and then we've been following it, you know, the whole way. And so we've really been able to see that it's navigable this whole way. Um, And we've sort of been able to understand that, yeah, if you can go down the river from here in Myrtula, you can get to the sea. That gives you access to North Africa. It gives you access to the Mediterranean. And, you know, it's just given us, I think, a much better understanding of why this is a strategic location where Myrtala is and why it was attractive for people to build here.
0: Yeah, and that's something that you can really only get from the Camino, you know, by literally walking alongside this river for four whole days. You come to understand, you know, the whole terrain and and what it meant in, in a whole different way. You know, similarly to the way that we walked along the Teju or the Tagus River uh, when we started the Camino Português last year, Um, you know, we live in Lisbon, very close to the river and see it, we we run alongside it all the time. So it's a big part of our lives, but to see it in, in different parts, in Places where it looks very, very different from the part that we're familiar with. It just gave us a whole different perspective on the river and how long it goes and its importance in in the country and things like that.
1: And the other thing that was something we noticed yesterday while walking here, and I don't know if this is something that was taken into account when the first settlement was made here, but you know, there's a lot of little hills and valleys around this area, and we were walking here and and we hadn't seen any glimpse of the town at all, and then at a certain point when we were probably, uh, I don't know, let's say two, three kilometers away, suddenly it just revealed itself. And it was like, and we could see the whole town. We could see the castle that was rising above it and we could see it all, but we just hadn't even seen a glimpse at all until we kind of basically turned this corner and suddenly it was right there. And so maybe it was sort of hidden as well um, from foes at the time, or that was one reason why uh, the city was built where it was.
0: Yeah, and it's also kind of, on a peninsula because you have the river on one side and then you have a smaller stream that's like a tributary of the Guadiana River on another side. So it's surrounded by water on three sides and you know is up on this hill and this almost an island in the middle of the river. So it's a very strategic location you know in terms of um, being able to fend off foes. and it makes a lot of sense that you would have built a town here.
1: Right, so given that this was this important trading town during uh, Muslim rule, there are vestiges of that rule still in Myrtala today, and I guess the most important of these is that parts of the mihrab, which is the prayer niche of the mosque, are still visible in the church that exists now where the mosque once was.
0: Yeah, and it's actually right where the altar is, right, you know, in the it's still the centerpiece of this place of worship, even though it's now a Christian place of worship rather than a Muslim place of worship, but it's still the the focal point that everyone is looking at while they're praying.
1: Yeah, and obviously we know throughout the Mediterranean, you, you have this example many times over where places of worship are built on top of previous places of worship of different religions, um, as though the, the site itself is a sacred site. Um, but to see that in Portugal is is very rare in that as of now, and maybe something will change if they do these excavations in Mesquita next month. But as of now, as I understand it, the, the mihrab of the mosque here in Mersala represents the only vestiges of a mosque in Portugal that date from the period of Muslim rule. Mm. Uh, it's often assumed, for example, that the cathedral in Lisbon is built over a mosque, but that the excavations haven't exactly completely proven that yet. There are uh, earlier remains underneath, but they haven't really been identified, if I understand correctly. Um, and so this is incredibly important that they have this here in Myrtilla.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure.
1: And so, you know, it's interesting because I, I wrote something for our website, spiritofthecamino.com, uh, a few weeks back, and it was about... Islamic heritage on the Camino de Santiago in general, and I was talking mostly about places like the Alhambra in Granada in Spain, uh, the Mesquita in Cordoba in Spain, the Real Alcázar in Sevilla in Spain, and at the end I just decided to add Myrtala just to give an example here in Portugal as well. Now, when you look at this mirab, it's not, it's not um, an incredible work of art or it hasn't survived to us today as an incredible work of art. It's just some vestiges. I mean, you can see that it it looks uh, Islamic in, it, in its... Um depiction mm-hmm. um, and there
0: are also a few doors into the church as well that you can see are built in a style that would have been you know would have been from the islamic architecture period
1: so if you go for example to the mesquite in Cordoba, which is one of the great buildings that i've ever seen and you look at the mirror up there it's absolutely incredible and the one mm-hmm. in mirtula is nothing like that no um, but the fact that it still survives is is really important Mm -hmm. The other thing uh, which has been interesting to us to come here for the second visit is that there's an archaeological site right near the church which was being excavated during our first visit. And we saw people working on it. Uh, And now they've finished their excavations and you can go and visit it. And there's a so-called Baihu Islamiku, which is an Islamic suburb or a quarter of the city. And so you can see some ruins of houses there as well.
0: That site was pretty amazing, actually. Um, Yeah, in addition to the Muslim architecture, there's also some Christian um, architecture that predates the Muslim period. So you have, you know, kind of sandwiched in between two Christian uh, periods, you have the Muslim period as well. And yeah, the excavations give you all these different layers of the history of Myrtilla, which, uh, found really fascinating.
1: And the castle of Myrtula, which is, you know, at the very highest point of Myrtula and kind of dominates the town. This is a castle built by the order of Santiago. So again, it's mm-hmm. more uh, connection with Santiago, with the gold of Santiago and the order of Santiago. Uh, and it was built in the late 13th century. And Myrtula was actually a, a headquarters, one of the headquarters for the order of Santiago. In Portugal, that, that headquarters seemed to move mm. uh, quite a bit. We've seen reference to three different towns now, um, one of which is on this Camino and the other two which are on the central uh, Camino of the southern Portuguese Caminos, uh, which were at one point or another the head of the Order of Santiago in Portugal. But the castle itself, the Christian castle, was built on top of an earlier Muslim fortification, and so there are still remains from, uh, I think, the Almohavid period uh, prior to that, and so there was some kind of essentially Muslim castle as well before the Christian castle was built. Uh, And then, of course, the other thing that we've mentioned a few times is that they have this Islamic festival every two years. It's very unfortunate that this year, because of COVID, they won't be able to have it. And it actually would be in a couple of weeks. So we would have just missed it.
0: Yeah, because it's normally the third week of May, I believe.
1: Yeah, something like that. And so we went four years ago. And it it was really great to, I think, just to see, you know, this town and Portugal um, in general celebrating its Islamic past. It was just a riot of... You know, of a, of a festival it could have been Morocco. You know, you had all mm-hmm. these this souk set up with all these stalls selling spices and selling Moroccan slippers and and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, to have a festival celebrating Islam, you know, in the West uh, is a bit unusual these days. Mm-hmm. And but you know, it honors the heritage of the town, and so it's something that's worthwhile, it's something that's worthwhile for people to to come here when we don't have these amazing visual vestiges of Islamic rule in Portugal, it's these other types of things that kind of keep the memory alive, and so I think that's really important.
0: Yeah, and I think Myrtila seems to have done a really good job of showcasing this uh, cultural heritage, and they're really proud of the festival. People you know, have told us that they're upset that They can't have the festival this year, but they are going to have it next year, from what I understand. Because normally it's every two years. So, you know, since 2021 was supposed to be the date, then the next date would not be until 2023. But they're planning to do it in 2022 instead. And maybe it'll just become an annual thing at that point. I don't know.
1: Yeah, maybe it will. And uh, I'd be more than happy to return for it as well. So as we've said a couple of times, we... um yeah, there's not a huge amount of information on this Camino, so we're not sure if there are any further Muslim vestiges or, or any other Islamic heritage on this Camino as we start to head north now. I think perhaps not. Uh, certainly Myrtla is the kind of high point uh, of that you know, in southern Portugal and on this Camino in particular. But in any case, we will continue on our Camino tomorrow and we'll see what else we discover.
0: Yep. And uh, yeah, we're happy to continue the adventure and see what it brings us.
1: All right. And so until next time, Bon Camino.
0: And Buen Camino. Thanks for listening. For more great content about the Camino de Santiago, visit our website at spiritofthecamino.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Spirit of the Camino. Buen Camino.